0: That plush, And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness.
1: Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hello and welcome to episode 41 of the Renaissance English History Podcast. And in this podcast... Benjamin Redding and I are going to talk about boats. So I'm going to introduce him in a second, but he is a PhD candidate whose expertise is in the Tudor Navy. And I first came across him when I was doing research for the episode on the Tudor Navy. So this kind of completes that circle. And we talk about boat building and grappling and lots of other things, maritime exploration But before I get started on that, two pieces of admin. The first is that the Renaissance English History Podcast is a proud member of the Agora Podcast Network, which is a group of independent podcasters who all kind of promote each other to make podcasting more popular in general. So this month, the podcast that we're um, promoting is the American Biography, which is the American story told through Americans' stories. And it's a podcast that's Essentially, biographies of not necessarily the most famous people in American history, but other civic leaders, cabinet members, and other people who drove American policy. So, check that out on iTunes, the American Biography, or you can also go to AmericanBiography.webs.com. And then the other piece of admin is that there are show notes available on the website, EnglandCast.com. And while you're there, do be sure to sign up for the mailing list. Mailing list subscribers get all kinds of free extra mini casts and giveaway opportunities, exclusive content and things like that. And it doesn't cost anything. It's totally free. And I won't ever spam you or sell your email address. Usually I send out about one, maybe two newsletters a month. So check it out at englandcast.com. All right, and without further ado, I'm going to go ahead and introduce Benjamin Redding now. So, Benjamin Redding is a final year PhD candidate in history at the University of Warwick. His research project under the provisional title. Divided by La Manche, Naval Enterprise and Maritime Revolution in England and France, 1545 to 1642, is kindly funded by the Economic and Social Research Council. This project evaluates the relationship between Navy and state in early modern England and France. His thesis considers naval development through administrative and financial advancements, quantitative growth, and visual representation. He is also an undergraduate tutor for early modern history and is currently working on a journal article which considers naval development in Marian and early Elizabethan England. And so a big thank you to Benjamin Redding for being here with the Renaissance English History Podcast today. I'm really excited to talk to you. And um, so, so yeah, thank you for being here. And hopefully we'll get a lot of information covered. So I'm going to dive right in and ask you the, the big million dollar question to start with, which is if you can summarize the changes in the Tudor Navy in the 16th century and how those changes reflect the larger shifts in the monarchy and society. And like I said in my question to you, I know that could make up an entire book. So however you can do it would be wonderful.
0: Yes, indeed. No problem. Well, as you say, there's been, you can easily write a book on this and there has been several books written on this. Um so yes, how 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 to how to how to go through this in as short a time as possible. Well, of course, the period. There's, uh, there's five different monarchs, um, starting off at Henry the Seventh, ending with Elizabeth. Um, all experienced the navy in different ways, perceived it for different things. Some utilized it, some didn't really have any interest in it whatsoever, and so it's. It really is about a change of policy rather than being a singular, continuing policy for out. Uh, of course, when the navy starts with Henry the Seventh, he develops a small interest in a navy. He develops the dry port at Portsmouth, and actually by the end of his reign in fifteen oh nine. His son is able to inherit between five and six vessels, and these were all reasonably large vessels. Actually, um, we have vessels such as the Regent and the Sovereign, that these the most famous ones. Um, and these vessels would, would continue into Henry's reign and be used um, used in warfare. So Henry already had some vessels to to utilise, which is which is more than his father could could have wished for when in 1485. So, and it's always interesting because Henry VIII is is now being perceived as the father of the navy, and it's certainly fair enough to depict him in that way. Um, Henry, Henry had a huge passion for navy; we know that pretty definitively from the records. In fact, when he was young, there's a particular account of, um, of Henry on one of his vessels when it's being Being launched, uh, this vessel was the Great Galley, and Henry is depicted in it as um, jumping up and down in joy as he as he's controlling this vessel. He supposedly has a golden whistle that um, was engraved on it. um, The the famous monarchy's motto, which still endures today, "Je Aime Mon Droit," God is my right, and it still continues. And Henry has a huge interest in it. You can see, basically, in this account that Henry's a huge child towards the navy. He, he enjoys it. He enjoys being on these vessels. They're a sign of power. And they're also a bit of fun for him, really.
1: It's like a toy or something, huh? Like a gadget. Absolutely.
0: A, a toy, a toy indeed. <laughs> a rather lash toy at that. Uh, yes, indeed. And um, we, we do know that Henry... Loved warfare, of course. He he's he's he aspired to be like his um he's inspired to be like Henry V, the warrior king of Agincourt. In fact, when Henry was young and he was being protected in the Tower of London during a rebellion during the Cornish rebellion, I, I believe, and um, when when he was young, he found influence in and fascination in the artillery there. He he found an active interest in it, and we believe that that's really one of the foundations of this interest there. And so, yes, by the end of Henry's reign, there are around 58 warships in in his fleet. Uh, So the the fleet had expanded by uh, around 50 vessels. And some of these uh, enormous vessels, the Henri Glass Azure, was also commonly known as the Great Harry. It was a vessel that, believed when it was first launched, was as much as 1,500 tonnes. But whereas on the other end of this, there was around 15 to 20 vessels known as row badges that, was, that could only be manned by um, the most perhaps 10, 20 people at the same time.
1: Um, yeah, I was going to yes. ask you how people, how it's measured because is, is there consistency within the measurements and and how how do we know exactly? how? Yes, are?
0: absolutely not. No consistency whatsoever. Uh, it, it's a long history to um, to how these vessels are, were measured. The <laughs> origin of the word turn spelt t-u-n as opposed to the metric term t-o-n and um, the, the origin in that term was actually founded in 14th century france in bordeaux and a tonne was actually a measurement of wine uh, i believe that top of my head a tonne was to around 250 gallons um yeah, and ha- how vessels were measured with how many of these these crates were two hundred fifty gallons in size. How many of them could be stored on a vessel? How many could be put on? And so the origin of the word "ton" and how, when we say a vessel was say one thousand five hundred tons, what we actually what what we actually mean is uh, there was a, there was someone who estimated how many of these cargoes, how many of uh, these um, t- these tons could actually fit on a vessel itself. Yes. Now things did change though during this period, and. Um, it does get complicated because by the time we get to Elizabeth I's reign, there is a particular um, particular shipwright known as Matthew Baker, and Matthew Baker founded a new, new rule on how vessels should be measured, and he he created the scheme, the scheme known as Baker's Rule, which was based on measuring the the um, the the depth of the ship, the length of the ship, the width of the ship, and from that he'd be able to determine how how what the size of a vessel was, but instead of being measured in tons T U N, it was measured in tons T O N instead, of oh my God. <laughs> which is why this is a rather complicated wow. area. Wow! Wow! But okay. but where after you do um, after Baker's rule is established, vessels therefore do have their kind of criteria to meet, and we can see a, a scale of accuracy in their measurement thereafter. I see. Um, so okay. Baker's rules really being Used by around 1580, and so by the 17th century, pretty much if you see a measurement of a vessel, you could expect that that's being, that's utilising a form of Baker's rule within it. And so they are you you can compare a vessel of let's say 1,200 tons in England, in I don't know say 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 Brighton or something, with a, a vessel of the same tonnage in London and assume that it's, it's the same size. Whereas if you used to do that 50, 60 years earlier. These, would be, these these estimates of the vessel size would be made by different people, and of course, therefore, it's guesswork, and you can presume they're probably of a different size with that said. So, yes.
1: Okay, sorry to sidetrack <laughs> you there.
0: <laughs> That's fine. Um, yes, yeah, so, of course, so Henry, I think we are talking about... So you were talking Henry's, about,
1: yeah, what he had... had yes,
0: yeah, so yeah. By the time Henry's death, 1547, there's around 58 vessels in the Navy, um, some a yeah. lot larger than others. Um, the the smallest vessels were, we know that were called road barges were really developed as a temporary kind of vessel to increase the size of Henry's fleet when they were competing against the French. That's really their only purpose. Hmm. Um, and so when Henry Henry dies and his son takes over, most of these road barges are, are sold off within the first one or two years uh, because there's basically no use for them. And so by the time of Edward's death, there are the, the the number the quantitative number of vessels within the fleet are significantly less, perhaps around thirty vessels it gone down to. Uh, That's also because these vessels were kind of neglected under Edward and similarly also under Mary the First. Neither monarch had that, that great of an interest in the navy uh, when compared to someone like Henry the And because of that the numbers really begin to drop. And it's really not until around 1556 that when, of course, when, when Mary marries Philip, I, Philip II of Spain, this begins to change again because Philip mm-hmm. realises that England has potential for a navy and he encourages Mary to begin, to begin developing her navy again. And so, within the space of between 1556 and her death, around four, five, six vessels uh, have, been de- have been built, and include including a, a a vessel known n- named the Mary Rose. Art, of course, the more famous Mary Rose vessel. Um, so we have multiple vessels being named the same thing here. <laughs> That's, of course,
1: so that makes your job really easy when you're doing all the research, right?
0: Absolutely. Um, one of the major issues, actually, is determining whether a vessel uh, a vessel made in 1510 was the same vessel declared in, say, 1530 under the same name, or rather that, that, that vessel's actually been completely rebuilt and redesigned in its totality. Yes, um, it's very difficult to determine, very difficult. In, in fact, perhaps impossible most of these occasions. Yes, so of course. So by the time that Elizabeth I inherits the throne, not only does she inherit also a war with France, which, of course, Philip had dragged Mary into, but she also develops a navy that's being redeveloped again. And she takes that in its stead and really, really develops it. She she realizes that many of the vessels in her navy are... Actually rather rotted and neglected and and de- them gets rid of them, and eventually and slowly over the next fifteen years replaces them with a really strong fleet of newly developed vessels and uh, to and skipping ahead slightly of course just slightly before the armada we have Sir John Hawkins and fifteen in fifteen seventy seven taking over the navy as um taken over the, the Council of Marine Courses as the treasurer of the Navy. And he completely revamped the Navy, develops new um, new architecture for vessels and develops what we often associate as the race-built galleon type of vessel, which was sleeker and faster and more manoeuvrable than those before it. And so the Elizabeth Beef and Navy really was... Quite advanced for its time when the when it encountered the empire. Yeah, I, I was just wondering, like the the
1: other question I had was like the policies between Henry and Elizabeth, and and it seems like Elizabeth had was really forward thinking. Is that because of that there was always like this threat to her that Henry didn't have as much, or what? Like what propelled her forward so much with that? Do you
0: um, I'd say absolutely not, really. In, in, in my opinion, Henry 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 was his own threat. Henry Henry made his own wars, whereas Elizabeth wasn't seeking warfare in the same kind of fashion. And Henry really seen the navy as a status piece. It, it was his opportunity to make England great, to make to give himself a name, and. So that's really why the navy developed, because he did have an interest in it, because he saw it as an opportunity to advance his own his own image. Whereas, I don't really believe that Elizabeth had so much of an impact on the navy. What, yes, the navy is most famous during that period, but the reason why is perhaps because of the individuals who surrounded her at that point. I mean, of course, we have to remember that Elizabeth was a woman, and so she 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 was she never was expected to have a military presence as her father was to, ha- was to have. She wasn't going to be depicted as a warrior queen in the same way that her, that her father wished to be a warrior king. But nevertheless, she the navy had developed so much in the last fifty fifty years through her father and and her brother and sister that. It developed a huge community of merchants and mariners and generally generally individuals who were interested in maritime knowledge. And it was these people she could use and she could trust to to be their advisors to guide and lead the Navy. People like Sir John Hawkins, like Francis Drake, like Walter Raleigh, something that's a father but didn't necessarily do in the same frame because her father was very much a hands-on man who it was who believed that it was his navy and the navy should be directed according to his command, according to his, his order. The navy was very much just a product of the state at that point, Henry, whereas Elizabeth perceived her navy as being something more about the knowledge of the merchant marine, marine community around her.
1: Sorry, I didn't mean to <laughs> So um, yeah, so you were talking. We were still kind of on the first question with just the the shifts in the monarchy and, and society as a whole. And it's just it's so interesting to me. This period seems to be all about this kind of move from a, a medieval world to a, a modern a world that we would recognize more. And and the navy seems to be such a great example of of that with this move away from the the. Uh, warfare techniques of the medieval age with the grappling, like I know you want to talk about, and then you know having these newer ships and and having more of the maritime exploration and and recognizing the world. And so, you know, do you think that that, that the navy is sort of a reflection for the the changes in society as a whole in the 16th century? Yes. Yeah, so the navy
0: was actually really kind of the leader in some of these developments. What it actually done was. Reformed how administration was governed, and so when, when, and by 1603, when we, we as historians, we, we as the outsider, look back uh, at what naval administration was by 1603, we can see a lot of comparisons to our own world that when was not comparable in 1509, in or even 1585. And um, for example, so when when Henry Henry the Eighth succeeded to the throne and and inherited the, his father's navy, there was only one full-time permanent administrative figure for the navy and that was a man called Robert Brigadine he was, who was the clerk of the king's ships. He was the only person who, who really maintained the navy in that sense. Yet, slowly as Henry decided he wanted to expand his navy, naturally there needed to be more and more people to, to run the navy and so more offices slowly developed, treasurers, um, surveyors, general clerks as well, on top of that. And and what actually happened in 1545, we had the establishment of what we called the Council of Marine Causes. And the, the Council of Marine Causes would actually later be known as the Navy Board. And the, yes, so the Navy Board, of the Council of Marine Causes, was when founded in 1545, a, a council of six principal officers, who all had a particular job to do within the upkeep of the Navy. It's been argued by historians such as Clifford Davies that this really was the emergence of a bureaucratic idea of governance, perhaps the first, the first, the first type of its kind. Because we have a council meeting to discuss the ideas, but at the same time, they've all got their own jobs to do. They've all got their own departments to run, to operate, to keep the Navy in function. And this is really important because in 1545 or 1546, Henry, of course, is getting very ill, famously very fat. And he can't do much in terms of run the Navy himself, in terms of having active interest in it. And so the Council of Marine Courses really takes his place. And when we get to Edward's reign and Mary's reign, the Council of Marine Courses is able to continue the Navy despite the two monarchs not necessarily having that much of an interest in it. So the Council of Marine Courses is so very important as an idea of of administration that did not necessarily rely completely upon the monarch for its for its occupation for its use. So that's very Yeah, important. so it's yeah. like a,
1: a, a branch of government that is um yeah, that's not as dependent on on the monarch and and was that kind of like the f- the first time you see something like that? I, I like from what you're saying it sounds like it.
0: Yes, absolutely. I mean, I it's often argued that, anyway, yes, indeed, uh, indeed, and
1: in in any country in Europe or just in England,
0: uh, abso- absolutely, you know. it's it's pretty much unique. Um, it, uh, I mean, some some historians such as Nicholas Rogers has have argued that. We we might be able to reflect on similarities in Venice, for example, but Venice is completely on the decline by this point, so it's perhaps not that important in that sense. And so, yeah, if you look at if you're going to look at the two other great powers at this point, so France and Spain, both both powers operate their navy through relying on its nobility only, and it they they. It's the navy is run in a deeply personal fashion where where the monarch dictates policy and the nobility are there to enforce it. There is no network. There is no administrative body like the council marine courses anywhere else in that sense. So absolutely, yeah, absolutely.
1: And do you think that's part of like what makes the English Navy so unique and um, so special? <laughs>
0: at this time period? Yes, yes, 100%. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. This is one of the reasons why the Navy was able to maintain, it, maintain itself and be classed as a standing Navy. Um, certainly, if you compare it to someone like France, France did not have a standing Navy by this point. In fact, France didn't really have a standing Navy until as late as maybe the mid-17th century. So we're talking about a century before. England was leading the way by having a standing navy because it had an administrative infrastructure to ensure that it was maintained. And by 1557, by, by, uh, 50, I believe, um, the, the Council of Marine Courses had a standard annual budget of £8,000. It was given every year for the upkeep of the navy. So it didn't even have to request finance to keep it uh, operating, it was giving this automatically.
1: That's really amazing. So that kind of answers the one of the other questions I was going to ask you about why the French or Spanish didn't develop in the same way and you know, kind of what makes the English Navy so unique. Um, yeah, and, well, yeah. there's
0: several reasons for it, really. Of course, that is one really pivotal reason. But others is the fact that we have to remember that England is an island, and that's hugely reflecting this identity, whereas powers like Spain and France... They, they could still, they, they, their, their, their main military force was the army because they didn't need a navy to sail across the shore to transport any troops in the same way. They, they, they could compete in the Italian wars through just tra- walking across land to do so, where England did not have that luxury to do so. It needed to develop a navy to transport troops. It, in, order to, in, in order to engage with the continent, the continent and the wider world, it had to have vessels to transport it. So that's so important. Other reasons are the fact of how the, the, na- the nation's geographical layout, its topography, um, how, it was, how it actually was located. Because England was very lucky in that the Thames is such a very large river that made access to London quite easy. And so the navy its dockyards could be situated very close to London itself. So, of course, the two main dockyards that we developed this around the 16th century are Deptford and Chatham, and these are huge, um, huge dockyards based in Kent, so very near to London. Which meant that when we had the counter marine courses, for example, they they could correspond with the the actual dockyards in a very simple and easy way. They could communicate easily. Whereas France never had anything like that. Of course, France's capital, Paris, Paris was located in the centre of France and the, it, it, its main river was not easy to navigate. It could not get large vessels down it in the same fashion. And so its, right. its navy couldn't be centred on Paris.
1: Right and I the same for Spain too I I live in Andalusia and it's funny when I think about how Columbus left from Seville and I look at Seville and it's like there's a river here really
0: like, you can't even see it Yes absolutely absolutely I mean you also need to remember that countries like um like France and Spain have 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 s- coasts that that um, look on at many other different hostile countries. If you look at France, not only has it comp- got to compete against the English and Northern, Northern Europe, but it's also got the southern coast, which is di- divided by Iberia, by Spain, uh, which means because of that, that France needed two separate navies, one in the south and one in the north, which means that it couldn't be centralised in the same way that somewhere like London was with the navy. Right. And
1: then, of course, the northern border with Scotland didn't necessarily need a navy so much because it's narrower and not—it's a land border, so it's not like you needed a navy there. So, Absolutely. I see what you're saying. Absolutely, yeah. that is
0: a completely one reason for it. The other reason is that Spain's navy, uh, sorry, Scotland's navy, diminished uh, after after maybe 1615, 1620, So early on in Henry's reign. Scotland didn't really have a navy anymore in fact what first happened in Scotland it developed vessels in around 1510 such as the Great Michael which was a huge vessel yet it was these vessels were too costly to maintain and because of that it sold them to France and so Scotland did not have a navy to really compete against in this against the English equivalent and so there was no need no need to have a navy up north
1: yeah yeah yeah. interesting And so then just uh, did uh, the way religion played out in England have, did that have anything to do with the way the Navy? I know you mentioned like Mary and her marriage to Philip, of course would have um, influenced the way the Navy was created, but did the the English religious experience was so different than in France and in Spain. And I just wonder whether any of that had anything to do, whether that's tied to it at all.
0: Yes, absolutely. I mean, we can even trace this if, if you look at, the great crisis of the late 1520s and early 1530s surrounding Henry's divorce, Henry was actually that busy and occupied at this point that the Navy was not even really recorded. There's very little actually happening for the Navy, but this would actually change when, um, when all these issues were resolved. And m- most importantly, when France and Spain entered an alliance in the late uh, 1530s. Because, of course, there was an invasion scare in 1538-9. to nine. And this clearly was very, very pivotal to the Navy. Because for the first time really, really since in the 1530s, the Navy is re- being rebuilt again. We we have vessels like we had the Mary Rose, we had Peter Corm- Pomegranate, we had the Henri Grasseur, all being rebuilt, all being reestablished. But because they know this threat is coming, of course this threat was was a just a scare. It it, it did not come to fruition, but the navy was certainly developing because of that. And really, after 1538 after the invasion scare that was supposedly um, developed because Spain and France weren't happy about what Henry was doing with the church Um, yes after that when we go into the 1540s that is really the time of the navy for Henry VIII that is when the navy really comes into into development absolutely, absolutely And, and the other important thing to remember is that England at least with Elizabeth is seen as a Protestant nation and that shapes its identity, and that means that when when people, we're going over to the Americas, the, when the reason behind it is because that we want to establish a Protestant colony, a, 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 a Protestant location for exploration. I think that's very important. That idea of a religious identity attached to this mm. maritime expansion, in that sense. Yes, absolutely. Yes.
1: Interesting. Interesting. So that would either take us to maritime exploration or to um, the the artillery. Do you, let's just go with maritime exploration then. <laughs> so um, can you talk a little bit of, about, you know, the, the English experience? I know they came at it later than the French or the Spanish and Portuguese. And then... With that, they had a little more of a unique experience with heading north and and the Muscovy Company and all that, um, and then North America. So um, what can you tell me about that?
0: Mm. Yes, I mean, first of all, you know, this is a time where we have this idea of mercantilism really being developed, The, the idea that the state is going to support great companies developing to develop trade, and then the state's going to reel in the profits from it, <laughs> reel in the benefits from it. And so it is important. Uh, you, you mentioned the Muscovy Company. So, yeah, the Muscovy Company was first founded on the, n- not because of my idea of trade, but because of the idea of exploration. It was, uh, if I remember right, around 1551, there's uh, Richard Chancellor, Sebastian Cabot, and most famously Sebastian Cabot, and Sir Hugh Willoughby. And they're actually trying to find a northeast passage to China. They're not trying to find Russia. But, of course, they get stuck and it <laughs> fails. But they do encounter um, the region of Muscovy and, more importantly, Moscow itself. And they're able to begin trading. They, do, um, Of course, England's main export is wool. And in, in exchange, they receive the kind of luxury furs from the uh, Russian region. And so it's really welcome, this idea of trade. And so, by 1555, Mary I has given these three. Actually, it's not these three individuals. Individuals, just one of them has died here when when <laughs> trying to. One of them died. Um, Richard Chancellor, I believe. Uh, no, it wasn't. Sorry, it was um, Hugh Rillaby died trying to find the passage to China. He, he froze to death, <laughs> unfortunately. But um, yes, the uh, and did
1: they find the ships? Didn't like Russian fishermen find the ships, and they were all just in place, frozen.
0: Yes, yes, indeed. Um, suppo- supposedly, they found Sir Hugh Willoughby, and he was frozen solid. He was, he? Yes, <laughs> um, y- yes, um, but he he was frozen solid along with all his crewmates, and it, it's one of these mysteries that's invited today as to what actually happened, why he actually died. Because we, I think, there's actually a theory that it wasn't actually just a cold that killed him it was actually, I think I have even heard it was carbon so poisoning.
1: Yeah. Like they were trying to burn stuff exactly. and
0: yeah. yeah. Yes. Um, of course being in a closed space, it's not a, a good thing to do. Yes. Um, so yeah, anyway, so 1555 companies established, um, and so trade between England and Russia kind of starts to flourish, but there's also disadvantages to it because England gets a bit greedy and it, by around 1570 it's asking russia if it will trade with Eng- with england in exclusivity with, um, with without, without russia actually trading with any other european nation which russia is not too happy about and actually for for a while at least kind of trade really stopped between the two parties and it's mm-hmm. It never really recovered properly after that point. We still had the company in existence until the Commonwealth period but it never really peaks again and one could link it to that kind of occasion then because after that period there was very much an anti-English sentiment by the Russians. So yes, it it, it was a the, the Moscovy Company was a intriguing time. It was an intri- intriguing event because it was one of the foundations that would lead to Elizabeth creating the Virginia Company and the um, the, the East India Company in the final year of her reign, and the the kind of charters are very much similar to the Muscovy Company's original one in fifteen fifty five. Yes, yes, but but as that if we're going to look at America, these it worked in exactly the same way. The any ideas of um, kind of creating these trade links the or even colonies themselves, they all developed because of the, the desire to explore, first of all. And of course, the most famous example was supposedly Virginia, the, the founding of Virginia. And of course, it was named, supposedly named Virginia because of Elizabeth's virginity. Um, but there was also a kind of anti-Spanish sentiment to it. Why should Spain have all the all the power and wealth, and so the navy becomes quite pivotal to it. There's, there's even for there's even theories which and strategies that never came into actual fruition, fruition that um, they should England should try and create a naval blockade that prevented the Spanish um, flotillas from ever actually making the full trans, um, the, the full kind of trip from from the Americas to Spain.
1: And that then plays into or leads into my questions about um drake and piracy and did other countries have like a drake
0: <laughs> <laughs> and draco
1: <Yeah>. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well drake is famous or infamous of course um <sighs> did they have an alternative <laughs> perhaps on being slightly favoritist and implying that they didn't know but um but England was certainly not unique in endorsing pirates in that way. That's what we to, to call them, of course, pirates or privateers. Um, there's a very thin line between them. The idea of privateers is that they're state, state sanctioned, that um, they're state endorsed, whereas pirates are not state endorsed, and and that's quite important because when when Spain accused. Drake of being a pirate, of course, England would say no, he's not. He's a privateer he, because he's being sanctioned by the state because he's being supported by us. And so there's a difference there. But no, absolutely not. It's Drake was not unique in that he was not the only kind of um, these these privateers, these pirates, are not the only people, um, the only the only kind of people being patronised by by a state such as England. The the, the main kind of example is in France. Of course, France during this period is undergoing a huge civil war, the French Wars of Religion, and um, there's a separate admiralty ship in um, in Guienne, which is which is in the hands of Henri de Navarre, who would later become Henri the Fourth of France. And Henri Henri de Navarre would issue what we call conges, um, which was literally a contract to. To, for the, individ, the individual the, the holder of the, the contract to go out and pillage and exact revenge for prizes and wow. so Navarre so done this and also another Protestant prince um, the Prince of Condé also <laughs> offered, regularly released these contracts and it wasn't only the Frenchmen we know that Englishmen also received these contracts from, from these Protestant autonomous states at this point so huh. It wasn't only something for England, although of course England will be notoriously known for it till thereafter. Right.
1: Interesting. Um, what else about kind of is there anything else about exploration that that you want to add in here that I haven't
0: asked? <laughs> uh, well, what what have you not asked? Um, of course, another thing that is developing at this point. Of course, we, we, we've looked at Russia and the Americas slightly, but we, there's, the, there's the old, the old trade routes. So Venice, Venice is still important to England. Venice is actually really a huge influence for England's idea of what a maritime state should be like. And although Venice is on the decline at this point, and England is certainly taking advantage of that, English sailors as very often found in the Mediterranean, still trading with the Venetians and even with the Ottomans at this period. So, of course, the Ottomans are a huge maritime power and not only a maritime power, but a piratical power as well. And one of the reasons why England had to arm the seas so very often is because of the piratical threats of the Ottomans.
1: Mm-hmm. And that's the whole like Le- the Battle of Lepanto and everything with that, right?
0: Yes, indeed. Yes. Uh, England wasn't really, didn't actually participate in the Battle of Lepanto. But yeah, the idea around it was that it's a huge Catholic coalition organised by the Pope or at least sanctioned, um, at least endorsed by the Pope. Mm. And it's against the Ottomans. And Of course, the, the Catholic side win. And it's quite important, that battle, because it was a battle primarily fought through galleys and that's what we haven't really talked about we should yeah let's... yes um so so for those of you who...
1: look at that segue it's almost like i planned that
0: <laughs> indeed Yes. <yeah. laughs> <laughs> yes yeah, so yes galleys so the galleys were oared vessels one tier vessels largely um designed in the mediterranean where of course in the mediterranean the sea was far calmer and so um so awed, awed propulsion was far more more utilisable. And so the galleys were used as opposed to the sailing vessels that that were used in England in the north. And the Battle of Lepanto is seen as really kind of the climax of the age of galleys. And really after Lepanto in 1571, uh, galleys are really on the decline and sailing vessels, which, of course, can go all the way across the Americas, which, ga- which an oared vessel, hey, I wouldn't want to be the person rowing, <laughs> rowing a vessel way right across the Atlantic. Um, so, yes, Ponta is seen as the, the end of the galley vessel, the end of this kind of classic medieval vessel. And what takes its place is the sailing vessel, which, of course, most of the English fleet is, does consist of sailing vessels. And it's not oared propulsion. Uh-huh. Although, with this said, Elizabeth, for for reasons beyond me, decided in the last years of her reign to to build five galleys in her fleet, and which is bizarre because, to my knowledge, there was not a single galley in her fleet during the Armada period, huh. and yet, in these final years, she builds them, and I I I can't understand why because they were never used. They basically sat there. In fact, they were still in the navy in um, in 1525, and they'd not been used for the last 25 years, to my knowledge, at all. Wow! And
1: so, oh, sixteen twenty-five. Yeah, sorry, okay. sixteen
0: twenty-five. Yes, sixteen twenty-five. Yeah. So, when when Charles takes over, he realised that there's these galleys here, and, oh and finally decommissions decommissions them after yeah. having sat stagnant there for all these years. So. I really cannot answer why these galleys
1: hmm.
0: were built. The, I, don't, I don't think there's a true reason for it. Other then perhaps Elizabeth realised that, hey, there isn't any galleys in my fleet. Maybe I should build some to, to make it appear more robust. Who knows? Who knows?
1: <laughs> Interesting. Um, so just with the changes in the galleys then what about the changes in the way people fought and in the um the, the way battles were fought with grappling versus artillery
0: yeah, excellent point. And it actually comes, it kind of follows on from the galley element because galleys, as they were all propulsion, they could not really use artillery down in the decks, mainly for one reason, because they only had one tier, but for other reasons, the fact that the oars got in the way of when you were trying to shoot. And so galleys still did use grappling tactics, the idea of lining two ships together, and then fighting in hand-to-hand combat. That was still typical of galley warfare and it was no different for much of this period that sailing vessels then the same the idea was that two vessels would come together grapple each other to um, and pull each other um, so close that the the two the two crews could board each other and fight hand to hand combat until one or another was defeated um yes and this is quite important because this change was very very gradual that we moved from hand to hand combat on ships to to long distance tactics it, very very gradual indeed we can say perhaps that the kind of pivotal moment was in the early and sorry in the early sixteenth century when um, when there's a famous a famous battle the Battle of Saint Malo, which in which two two um, a, a French and an English vessel lined lined up grappled each other, uh, and then a fire broke out on the French vessel and spread to the English vessel and both vessels went down, killing most of the crew rivets. Um, so, yeah, clearly that, that was a sign that this tactic wasn't the most efficient <laughs> of one's crew and resources. And it wasn't the only time. A couple of years later, the, in, actually just one year later, in 1513, um, there, was, there was another occasion where this grappling technique was used with an English and French vessel. Uh, and um, and the, Admiral, the Lord High Admiral, who at this point was Sir Edward Howard, Edward Edmund Howard, Howard. yes, um, Sir Edward Howard. He he went aboard this vessel and started fighting hand to hand combat. But then suddenly the grapples somehow broke off in the ships, and and Howard's vessel slowly disappeared into the distance without him. Oh no! (laughs) And then
1: he's just stuck. He was stuck and stranded.
0: He was stuck and stranded indeed. And we don't we don't know completely what happened there, except for the fact that. Ed, his his body was eventually found floating in the water. So one way or another, he was, he was killed.
1: Aww.
0: And so, yes, another sign that this tactic was not a very good one, shall we say.
1: Right. But and so it, so sorry, the,
0: but it, it was oh. continued nevertheless. Um, and the reason behind it is by grappling, there was an opportunity to get more benefit from it. So, um, it. By grappling, you could capture a, ve- a vessel, right, and then integrate mm-hmm. it into your Navy, take all, pillage see. it of resources. And so it was more financially viable to do that rather than just shoot at a vessel until it sinks and ach- achieve nothing as a result.
1: Interesting. I see. So there was a positive to grappling why they would want to keep it.
0: Absolutely. Going. And that is why it's still a preferred tactic for the privateers, even in Elizabeth's reign. Uh Even though we do have what perhaps we could even say the origin of the broadside tactic of broadside tactic meaning the idea of deploying um, deploying one side of one side of a vessel's artillery simultaneously at the same time at a single vessel, we do believe that that perhaps developed in Elizabeth's reign. Um, Yes, yes. So even though that's occurring, there was long after still this idea of if we can grapple with them let's try and do it because it's the more financially viable thing to do.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, and I'm thinking also about, I, I did an episode, a podcast episode on the, um, the and iron industry and the cannon that they we're creating there with the blast uh, with the blast iron furnace, and I was thinking about that in the navy. And it, it seems like this development, like one pushed the other with the artillery as well. Like the being able to have these less expensive cannon would push wanting to use them if you had them, but then that would push the development of ships that could use them. I suppose. Is, is there anything like that that you found?
0: Yeah, I mean, the one thing you have to remember straight away is cannons are very very heavy things. Yeah, and so before integrating them within vessels in any significant number you need to ensure that the vessel's architecture was suitable so that it could sustain them and so before you could even cut out a hole within a within a a vessel's hull to so that a so that kind of protrude from it you need to actually ensure that the vessel was stable enough to be able to hold these cannons and 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 to be able to have a hull cut out of it in the first place, I see. And so, what actually happens is there is a, I guess one could call it a revolution in naval architecture during during the very early 16th century, um, and it was certainly fully in full stream by the 1530s, 1540s period. Um, and what this development was is we went through what we call a clinker. Develop, um, idea of shipbuilding to a cargo development and this meant that how vessels were originally constructed in the medieval period was that a plank of wood was literally nailed over to on top of another ie it was overlapping another piece of wood and they would just slowly build um, build these plants up to build the outside of the of the, of the ship to build the hut so these vessels these these plants were overlapping lapping mm-hmm. And this caused huge problems if you're going to integrate artillery on a ship because if you cut a hole within a ve- within a vessel which was clinker built, it could seriously weaken the structure of the vessel because each plank wasn't kind of sitting on the p- the plank in front it, b- below it. Instead, it was merely it was merely placed on top of it. So by cutting a hole out, it was going to weaken the st- ship structure and perhaps ultimately destroy it. And so what happened instead was this new development called Carvel, called Carvel Building. And what this was is the idea that a ship's spine was constructed first and it's ripped. So you would build the skeleton of a ship first. And from that, you would then place, um, place planks of wood on the ribs, nail them on. And instead of having the planks overlapping each other, they were instead just laid next to each other. So... They were they were on top of each other rather than laying laying on top laying on top of each other. If that makes any sense, and what this done is made it far easier to cut a hole out of the ship, uh, of of the ship's hull because you could you, you could you could cut cut the hole and yet still have these planks sitting on, on top of each other, um, resting on each other in a, a, far, a far more kind of architecturally strong way, and and so that was important and. Mm-hmm. It's really it, Well, it really was very important because it allowed the artillery to slowly be integrated into the hull of the ship more and more, which meant that artillery, heavy artillery, could be used more and more within the vessel. And we do kind of know when this event was coming about because of the architecture of the Mary Rose herself. Um, and the- I was
1: just going to ask you to tell me about the Mary Rose as well, so <laughs> okay. is, you're reading well, my so, mind.
0: <laughs> some of the architecture, so, some of the, um, the, the construction of Mary Rose is Carvel built, whereas other parts of it is clinker. Mm. The actual top decks are clinker, so this old structure, whereas the, whereas the um, below decks were, the, were Carvel, which, which says that there was a, a known appreciation of how Carvel should, could be used. It, they they knew that if you're going to integrate um, artillery below a deck, it needed to be caravel. Whereas those on the top of it on the top of a vessel weren't really going to have heavy artillery protrude, artillery protruding from it, especially with a vessel the size of the Mary Rose, because it would hit nothing. Sure.
1: So tell me about the Mary Rose then, and what makes the story so special?
0: <laughs> right. Well. The interesting thing about the Mary Rose well one of the many interesting things is that we don't actually know for certain if it was if the plans for it were developed under Henry VIII or actually his father mm. it was it was certainly being built in 1510 which implies therefore that the the idea of building her was around in fifteen oh nine, so it could very easily have be been one of Henry the Seventh's last things he'd done to commission this vessel to be constructed. Mm. We don't we don't know that for certain. But nevertheless, one of the reasons why she's so important in that sense is because she survived throughout almost the entirety of Henry the reign, of course missing out in that final year and a half because she she sunk in fifteen forty five. But uh Yes, she, she 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 really is a, a vessel of Henry VIII himself in that sense. Her name is very important as well. Again, we don't know for certain why she was named um, what she was. There's many theories around it. The first one being Mary, the Mary Rose was named after his sister who he who he loved. Another reason, another another explanation for for, for the name is that she might might have been named after the Virgin Mary. But there's also some kind of significance in the fact that she's named Rose, because Rose could again be linked to the idea of the Tudor dynasty and and what the Rose represents within that. Mm-hmm. So we don't know exactly why the name the name was chosen, but that's one of the options as to why it could have been.
1: Um, so we don't know a lot about the the her commissioning or her name. What do we know about her?
0: <laughs> right. Well. Um, she was a she was a, a large vessel she wasn't the largest of Henry's fleet, but she was in the in the top five shall we say for most of his range She was around uh six hundred tons so, so she was she was she was big she was big and um she was one of henry's favorites um she was often chose as the flagship of the fleet despite there being vessels such as the honorary glass as which were what was larger mm-hmm. um why is the Mary Rose so, so famous is another question and I don't think there's necessarily a historically appropriate answer for that because perhaps why she's so famous is the fact that she survives till today in some kind of way and also the fact that she's sunk and we, and we and we know where she's sunk now and we, and we can access her um, because yes surely Something like henry's lar- one of he- well Henry's largest vessel, the Henri grasia, should have been perhaps known as more famous because of its size and the fact that it was meant to represent the king and itself mm-hmm. but no it's not we, we if, if you if you just talk about the Tudor vessel today, perhaps the Mary Rose is the first one that comes to most people's mind, and I think that's because of what the Mary Rose really provides for us today in its archaeological evidence it really provides us with. And knowledge that we didn't have before on how people lived during this period, and most, most importantly, how people lived on these vessels. Mm. Um, yeah, you know the fact that we have game, we have backgammon games within it, and um, cook pots, and uh-huh. and of course various skeletons, and and the skeletons are very important as well because the skeletons tell us a lot about how about life on board ships for example the fact that the heavy lifting of some of the artillery actually crushed some of the kneecaps of, um, of the, the men utilising them also um, we, we know from the, the, the skeletons that we could identify exactly who the archers are because of a particular bone within the shoulder that usually only, um, only fully forms during the late teenage years and yet, we can tell from the skeletons that it hasn't; it, it's corroded. It hasn't actually formed because they were they were using the longbow because the, the the force that was required to the longbow prevented this bone from ever completely developing. So, wow. it's so being a, a man of the military in Tudor England was not good for your health mm-hmm. in that sense. So, it's fascinating like that. So, I really think the Mary Rose gives us a great glimpse into the well the wellitude in England perhaps more than we've ever been able to achieve before she was recovered in 1582 yes
1: thank you so much for sharing all this I'm looking over my list of questions here and I I think I have asked everything that was on my list is there anything that you would like to put in here that I haven't
0: um let's talk we could talk a little, little bit more about the size of vessels
1: Okay. Because that's
0: very important. Because um, you, we, we talk about propaganda, okay? And, oh, right, uh,
1: yes, okay. I missed that part. <laughs>
0: yeah. um, the, the, the size of vessels is very important in propaganda, okay? Because in the male mindset, size means size is great, right? And size size creates the power. Mm-hmm. And that is the image that one was wanted to be portrayed. So when we have vessels, most famously the Henri Grasseur, for example, um, of a, which was reportedly when first made 1,500 tons in size, the reason why she was so big is not because oh big therefore meant that she was going to be the best ship in the seas. No, instead the reason why is because Henry wanted to outdo all his rivals.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It Henry, Henry built the Henri Grasseur probably because he'd seen the. He, his uh, James IV the his his the Scottish King's ship, the Great Michael, which was probably a thousand tons, and he didn't want to be outdone by the Scottish, and so he built, not. of course, and so he built this ship of a larger size. And what is a truly humorous and phenomenal fact for me is that when this ship was um, was was launched, Francis I heard of the size of this, this ship and so Francis I of France decided to commission his own ship what was going to be even larger and so th- this happened around 1520 and he built this vessel called Le Grand François and the vessel supposedly was 2000 tons and it was and he claimed it could hold 2000 men to acrivalate that
1: mm-hmm.
0: but the vessel was that large that it was impossible to get her out of port <laughs> And they never got her out of port, to my knowledge. And she ended up having to was she was she ended up being stagnant in port for about ten years, and then was hit by lightning and destroyed. Well,
1: that's and, a good use of money.
0: <laughs> <laughs> absolutely, absolutely, yes, a, a fantastic use. But that's what it was all about: it uh-huh. size and size equated to money, and money accretes to power, right? right? And and that's so very important, not only to. As a deterrent to your rivals, but also to your kingdom, so you got to remember a ship is one of the only things that can be transported across the whole kingdom so that everyone can actually see the power of the monarch mm-hmm. by looking at this vessel, of course no one's ever actually seen Henry, but by by some people getting a glimpse of this vessel, it inferred the power that was represented with the mm-hmm. with the vessel with the monarch itself mm-hmm which is why it's so important that the vessel was named, really, after Henry, in that sense. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's great. It, it, it's great there. Hmm. It's so <laughs> the size is very important. and it, for, it was for Henry, despite the Henri grasse really actually being quite a useless vessel for most of this period. It was, it was caught by poor weather um, and at various times had to um, be into, go into the port for a repair because of this. And what would actually happen in around fifteen thirty eight ish, so when the invasion scare is occurring, the Henri Grasseur is brought into the dockyard and reduced in size to about a thousand tons instead.
1: Oh wow, so it can it's more um seaworthy. It's able to absolutely. do more. Yeah. Yes. Interesting.
0: Indeed. So, yeah. so it's
1: almost like a sixteenth a century arms race.
0: Yeah, yes, you could absolutely say call it that. Absolutely. Yeah, and um the reason why England won against France really is because of what would happen to France domestically. Um, so, uh, so Elizabeth's main kind of rival, well, for the last year of her reign, for the first year of her reign, was Henri II of France, and he really had developed the French fleet. Um, it was certainly comparable to the English equivalent. But after, after Henri II, the French, um, French wars of religion occurred. And the Navy is completely demolished in France, which means that France never no, no longer needs to serve as a contendant against against the English opposition.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: naturally, who comes next? The Spanish to serve them.
1: At this point in the interview, my internet started going completely wonky, and we kind of thought that was a sign to stop anyway, because we'd gone on for an hour. So I want to really thank Benjamin Redding. I really got a lot out of this interview. And I'm sure that he is going to be a historian and historian to watch here in the future. So I don't know, you know, 10 years from now, 15 years from now, when he's doing programs on naval history on the BBC, you can say I first heard him on the Renaissance English History podcast, right? So keep that in mind. And, you know, do follow him as his career progresses. And I'm so glad that he was able to be on the show. So the next episode, we're going to start to focus on the theater. As I have said, I'm going to start a little theater module. But I was so, so lucky and um, fortunate that Allison Weir agreed to be interviewed for this podcast as well. So I'm going to wind up adding in the Allison Weir interview and then going on to the theater from that. So I know in the last episode, I said that we were going to have Benjamin Redding, and then we were going to do the theater, and I'm deviating from that. And I do apologize. But, um, you know, it's not every day you get a chance to to talk to Alison Weir for half an hour. And so we're going to, to put that in and then move on to the theater after that. So thank you so much for listening. I know it's been a long one. And I do appreciate your listenership. And thanks again to Benjamin Redding. And check out the show notes at englandcast.com. All right. Thanks so much.